Amen. Well, last week, as I mentioned, uh, kind of in the announcements, uh, was our Stewardship Commitment Sunday, where we not only had the opportunity to pledge our financial giving for the upcoming year, but really more than that, we reaffirmed our faith and commitment to Christ with all of our lives. Because ultimately, that should be the driving force in our giving. That being our heart to serve the Lord with joy and devotion because of what the Lord has done for us. Today our passage is from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Not 1 Corinthians. A lot of times we preach on 1 Corinthians. Not many sermons on 1 Chronicles. Uh, So we're going to look at the Old Testament. And I wanted to offer... um, a few kind of just remarks on this, and I made this timeline. Uh, if you'll put that on the screen for me, I made this in seminary. Um, I needed a way to, as we were working our way through, especially the Old Testament and all the books of the Bible, and especially when we got to the prophets, I started getting lost like, wait, when did this person and what and where and how? And so the youth group probably uh, gets tired of seeing this because we spent a lot of time through the pandemic going through the Old Testament. I don't know how many times I referred to how many times I referred to it, but I'm always kind of tweaking with it. So even for the youth group, it's tweaked a little bit, just kind of mainly in formatting. But I bring this up so uh, you can't see the oh that screen. You can see the dates. It's not over there. Okay, so there's some some approximate dates up there. And today we're going to be looking at this section right here with David and Solomon and the books of the Bible. So we have Genesis and then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in the time of Moses. We have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth happens within the the context of Judges. And then we have these books here, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So the first thing to note is when you have a 1st and 2nd In the Old Testament like that, they're actually just one book where first Samuel leaves off, it's right where second Samuel starts. There's no gap. They're not separate books. They're actually one continuous book. They just split them into two, just mainly just based off the length of them. Um, But what's important, so this is a very important time in Israel's history because first and second Samuel... It actually begins in the time of Judges, before a king was established. But the book of Samuel ends with King David's death. So he's still alive, and then it ends right at his death. Well, 1st and 2nd Kings picks up right at David's death, and then goes all the way to the fall of Jerusalem. So it covers quite a bit. And I try to put a little marker there where actually 1st Kings and 2nd Kings split. But you'll notice First and Second Chronicles directly overlaps First and Second, or almost directly overlaps First and Second Kings. But you probably you see this dashed line that I have here. So this is just my way of saying there's something a little different happening with Chronicles, because it actually begins with Adam, as in Adam and Eve in the garden. Chronicles begins with a genealogy, starting all the way at Adam, and it goes all the way through the history. And it ends its genealogy with the genealogy of King Saul. And then it picks up with King Saul's death in chapter 10. And then picks up with David becoming king. And so really, 
So there's nine chapters of just genealogy. And then this little section right there, that's pretty much all of First Chronicles. That's all it covers is that little, little span of time right there. And then Second Chronicles covers the rest of that, that time period. So what this kind of tells me, just kind of visually, is when you have all these things really coming together, something significant's happening at that moment in time. And of course, you know, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard of King David, and you know what a great king he is. And actually, as we move into Advent, I'm sure we will talk about the covenant that God made with David. And actually, I'm going to refer to it in, in just a moment. But we're going to pick up in First Chronicles, near the end of David's life, which actually overlaps a little bit with the book of Samuel. Um, and oh, when you go back, I want to say one more thing real quick about the timeline, just because I'm a nerd. Uh, so if you're ever reading through the Old Testament, and you read through First and Second Kings, and then you start in First and Second Chronicles, if you're like, I swear I've read this before, it's because you probably have. They overlap, and a lot of the stories are almost word for word um, in, in both. Sometimes slight differences, sometimes one will include a story, the other won't. And that's actually what happens in our text today. This particular text only occurs in First Chronicles. Um, so I just thought I'd, I'd mention that. Okay, so now let's, let's pick up. So as I mentioned a second ago, there's a, there's a very important thing that happens in King David's life. And it's after he brings the Ark of God to Jerusalem, and, and there's this celebration, and he, he wants to build a house for the Lord. And in this passage, so this is in chapters kind of 13 through 17, this whole scene. But in these chapters, this is where God says, no, you're actually not the one who's going to build a house for me. But rather, God says this, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are fulfilled to go be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. Now, before we hear this passage and we jump straight to Jesus, which... Jesus completely fills this promise to David. Uh, the promise was first partially fulfilled in David's son, Solomon, because it was Solomon who would build the temple in Jerusalem. But I think it's, it's kind of funny what happens in this, in uh, First Chronicles, because it's almost like David just can't help himself. Uh, you know, even though the temple was to be constructed under Solomon, David was actually the one who planned it all. Like, he, he didn't just say, okay, Solomon's got it all. David actually made all the plans for it. He was the chief architect of the temple, and he describes his plans in First Chronicles chapter 28 and other chapters. But as we look into chapter 29, and I'm going to split this into two sections, uh, I want to begin with verses... 1 through 9. And here in, in, these first, in this first section, we will see David as the 
uh, as one as the principal financial donor for the temple and the leader of what we might call the, the stewardship drive for the temple. So first, let's pick up with our reading there, make a few comments, and then we're going to continue on. So this is First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 1 through 9 to start. King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple will not be for mortals, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for settings and timony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble in abundance. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, uh, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by artisans, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating themselves today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the ancestral houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Basically, that's saying it's, it's a lot of stuff. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because these had been given willingly. For with single mind they had offered freely to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. Now here's, I want to pause and just make a few observations. So one, I kind of want to say just right off the beginning, kind of poor Solomon in a way. David doesn't seem to have a ton of confidence in him. He says, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And this work is great. It, it, it's kind of like, what's this comment about? It's almost like David is saying, Solomon, I didn't choose him. That was God's plan. But, you know, we're going to go with that because that's what God said. And the reason why David doesn't build the temple, he actually gives us in, in previous chapters why he doesn't build the temple, is because he's been in too many battles and killed too many people. So he has too much blood on his hands. But of Solomon, he says he's young and inexperienced. And that's not the only time David mentioned this. He mentions it in chapter 22. And he says, for David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced. And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorified through all the lands. I will therefore make preparations for it. I don't have a great theological point to make here. I only mention that because it kind of sounds like David's like that dad that doesn't have a whole lot of confidence in his kids. Like, I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to make all the plans. And, okay, Solomon, as long as you stick to my plans, everything's going to be okay. So... That's my only point with that. To me, it just sounds kind of funny. 
But my second observation, and this is more relevant, is we do see David showing great leadership. David is king. And so as king, if he wanted something to be built, he could have ordered his subjects to pay for the temple. He could have initiated or instituted a tax on the people. He could have, I don't know, sold indulgences to the people. That's been done before. As king, he could have done whatever he wanted and ordered whatever he wanted to order and made others bear the cost and the responsibility of of the temple. But we see that David's heart is devoted to the Lord and he is himself willing to give, and not only to give, but to give in an abundance to the Lord. In verse 2 we see him say, So I have provided for the house of my God as far as I am able And in verse 3, moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Did you catch in this, uh, in verse 3, why David says he gave? He gave, that word because gives us a good clue. Because of my devotion to the house of my God. His whole motivation, it's not political, it's not grandizing, it's his motivation was his devotion and his love for the Lord. And so David did not demand from other people, he did not coerce other people to contribute. Instead, he gave first and he inspired others uh, to willingly give. And we see later uh, in this next slide, The verse that says, then the leaders of ancestral houses made their free will offerings. And it it repeats that that idea of free will offerings. We hear a lot lot about offerings in the Old Testament. There's offerings for all sorts of things. But this this one's a little unique. We don't see this one a whole lot. Free will offerings. Meaning that this was completely voluntary. And it was up to the individual as to what they would give, how much they would give. It was to their own free will, out of their own heart. The most important thing about it was that it was done as a sign of their devotion to the Lord. Not out of an obligation to um, the king, not out of obligation to the state or anything like that, but out of their just heart for God. And so when we consecrate ourselves to the Lord... We are dedicating ourselves to the Lord's service. And I want to make a final note on this first section in verse 9, where it says, Then the people rejoiced, because these had given willingly. For with a single mind they had offered freely to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. See, the people had come together and they had given as a community with a sense of joy and thanksgiving for the single purpose of glorifying God and praising God through their commitment and through their gifts. Together, they believed in what they were doing. They had hope for what the future held, and it was a day for them to celebrate. They rejoiced greatly. It was a day to give thanks. And it's here that I want to pick up and read the rest of our passage today. Because it's truly a wonderful passage of praise, and I hope this leads us into this week of thanksgiving. Picking up in verse 10. 
Then David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. It is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. And now, our God, we give thanks to you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to make this freewill offering? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and transients before you, as were all our ancestors. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you search the heart and take pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to my son Solomon that with single mind he may keep your commandments, your decrees, and your statutes, performing all of them, and that he may build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to the whole assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. On the next day, they offered sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs with their libations and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great joy. This passage is all about worship. The word worship means to ascribe worth to. And what we see in their actions and in in David's words here is them ascribing worth to God. It's, It's a prayer that David offers. It's exalting God and giving him worth and praise. It's it's joyous and it's celebratory. And it also is understanding and acknowledging of our own finiteness. I love verse 11. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. What a great line of praise. It speaks to the sovereignty and the majesty and the glory of God. But I also really like in this section verses 14 and 16. It's a little puzzling that David presents this almost kind of a rhetorical question, I guess we can say. He says, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to make this free will offering? For all things come from you. In verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. 
and is all your own. Who am I? Who, who is my people? David knows that there is nothing that we can come before God with and boast about. God is never in a position where he is obligated to tell us thank you. And we are never in a position to say to God, you're welcome. All we can offer to God is what God has already given us. We are merely stewards of the gifts of what God has given us. And we should always keep in mind that even our ability to give, whether it's our time, our energy, our money, our resources, whatever it is, that our ability to give is in itself a gift of God. That we can give of something shows that it is a gift of God. God allows us to be in a place where we can bless others through gifts he has given us. And everything we have and everything that we are is a gift from God. So when we start seeing everything around us as a gift of God, you know, maybe the, the trees outside, the air we breathe, the sunshine, the rain, the music that fills our ears, our homes, our abilities, our brains, our relationships, our children, our families, when we see all these things rightly as gifts of God, how can we not worship God? How can we keep ourselves from praising the Lord? What else can we do other than to give thanks to God and praise the Lord of heaven and earth? Because God is a giving God. God gives in creation. God gives through the breath of life. And of course, the ultimate example of God's generosity is represented by the symbol of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Our response to God's extravagant generosity should be to willingly and happily, joyously devote ourselves to the Lord's service. And to walk in God godliness requires of us a giving heart. Because when we give of ourselves, we are glorifying God because we are reflecting God's very character as a giving God. When we see more clearly the gifts and the blessings of God, we are more willing to extend that generosity because we see the grace behind it. And we are more uh, sincerely living with an attitude of gratitude. We like that little play on words. But this week, we as a nation will celebrate Thanksgiving. Obviously, you know that. But what does it really mean to us? For the most part, it's simply a national holiday uh, where we gather with friends, eat a bunch of food, you know, turn on the football game, maybe take a nap in our stretchy pants, you know, at least until it's time for the next round of leftovers, and you know, then we just kind of create the whole circle again. I remember thinking back, or uh, thinking back, I remember being in elementary school, you know, learning about the first Thanksgiving, you know, and I remember we would uh, have a little craft project to make, you know, silly pilgrim hats and dress up like pilgrims, and then the other half of the class would uh, get um, brown paper bags and make like a leather vest and maybe a headdress and everything. That was when we could fit in, you know, grocery bags at that point when we were that little. 
And we learned about how, you know, these two groups gathered in, near Plymouth, Massachusetts, and they had this meal together, and then that kind of sparked things. That's, that's not exactly how it worked. But as a fun fact, um, so that first Thanksgiving feast that, the, that we often say is the first Thanksgiving feast uh, was said to have taken place in 1621. So here's the fun fact that this year would be the 400th anniversary of that that uh, that event but what is thanksgiving really about so i want to i want to kind of take us through a few things so our national thanksgiving day it's the holiday is attributed to a proclamation made by president abraham lincoln in 1863 not long after the battle of gettysburg and actually lincoln didn't issue just one proclamation of thanksgiving he, he issued multiple, even before this and after this. But this particular one in 1863, uh, well, actually, this first one is one that he did right before that. But notice the, the title under a proclamation, a day f- of thanksgiving, praise, and prayer. How often we're quick to, to drop this last part of that. Thanksgiving. Yeah, we can, be, we can give thanks for a lot of things, but it's intentional its intent was to be a day of thanksgiving, praise, and prayer. And uh, if you'll go to the, the next slide, I want to focus more on, on this one. Because this, is the, uh, this was issued in October, or on October 3rd, 1863. And it established the last Thursday in November to be a national day of thanksgiving and praise. And I wanted to read, I'm not going to read all that. I know you can't see it, but that's just kind of what it looked like. Uh, but I wanted to read a, a section of this. So this is from Abraham Lincoln. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also to those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. But Abraham Lincoln wasn't the only one who established this. There's also a a great proclamation that even the first president of the United States, George Washington, issued. And I I wanted to read a, a paragraph or two from his as well. So this was issued in 1789. It says, by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor, and whereas both houses, houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all that Uh, all the good that was, that is, or that will be. 
that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. There's no separation between this idea of giving thanks and who we are giving thanks to. Days of thanksgiving were about designating a day for the special purpose of giving thanks to God. But that mentality has largely faded from view. You know, like many things, thanksgiving has become more about consuming rather than giving thanks and praise. It's become more about entertainment and parades and football and movies and even Black Friday shopping. It has veered toward being a national holiday rather than a religious holiday, which is ironic because the word holiday is the compound word for holy day. Thanksgiving is supposed to be a day of worshiping God. And maybe, you know, other than the pre-meal, pre-meal prayer, that's maybe sometimes all the thought we give to God on that day. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I'm, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm not trying to be the bummer pastor and taking all the fun Thanksgiving Day things away. I'm not suggesting making your Thanksgiving boring or solemn or quiet. But I am suggesting this, that we simply keep in mind the reason for the season. What I am saying is maybe this year we spend just a little more time rejoicing in the blessings of God and celebrating that with heartfelt prayer and praise and worship. Thanksgiving is supposed to be a joyous day. It's a celebration day and one in which we are grateful to God. We have a lot to be thankful for. I think we can all admit that. God has given us so much. Even when life is hard, if, if we can just step back and gain a little perspective, we see the goodness of God all around us. And we give thanks and praise to God for that. So let this Thanksgiving be a day of praise and prayer and worship of our God, maker of heaven and earth, the great giver. And like I said, we've uh, all heard the line, don't take the Christ out of Christmas, but here's our challenge. Don't take God out of Thanksgiving. For this Thursday, this day of Thanksgiving, I want to encourage us all to do three things. Consider these three things. Read, pray, and praise. Read and reflect on some scripture. Read a psalm of praise. Read from 1 John, from Ephesians, or what we looked at today from 1 Chronicles 29. Up to you. But spend some time on that day reading scripture. Second thing, spend time in personal prayer. Beyond just the pre-meal. I mean, do the pre-meal you know, prayer. Do, do that like normal. But spend some time in prayer on that day. Not just for the food. And let it be personal. Let it be honest. Pray as you reflect on your life. Sit in that. Let things come to mind of how God has blessed you. And give thanks to God for those things. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Pray for our nation. Pray for our community. Pray for our church. And finally, this Thanksgiving, praise God. Sing a hymn. Sing a song of praise to God. Make it personal. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all us creatures here below. Praise him, all ye heavenly host. Praise him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.